Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. My name is Tyler. I am one of the pastors here. And let's dig in. You can turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17 this morning. And while you're turning there, perspective is an interesting thing. Each and every single one of us, we can look back on our lives, and we can see the ways in which our perspective has changed over the course of our lives. Now, certainly some of those things we can look back on with thoughts of humor Others, we may look back and and have thoughts and feelings of regret. When we are infants, we have this obsession with uh, power outlets. And at a time unknown to us, we simply decide that it's not a good idea. And so, um, if you're still doing this, don't. Uh, At some point, your finger just stops creeping towards the power outlet. And your perspective has changed. Instead of seeing it as something that is uh, appealing to you, you you realize that this is actually something that's dangerous. Whenever we move into adolescence and into our teenage years, independence is king. And then you get a little bit older and you wish someone would do basically everything for you. And so your perspective, it, it changes. And then you get a little older even than that, and and your career becomes the thing. If I could just find the right job, if I could just get the job that would give me the most money, then then I would be happy, fulfilled, and satisfied. And then you spend maybe a lifetime of doing that thing, and you realize that there was so much more that was way more important. And then we think, we get a little bit older, and we think, oh man, if... If I could just get married, uh, then maybe I wouldn't struggle with sexual sin anymore. That, that would go away because I'm able to do the thing that God has made me to do within the context of marriage. And then you're married for a little while, and you realize that you're married, but you're still you. Or you become a parent. And I just want to say, if you were up here just now and that is your first child, your child is perfect. For the rest of you, if you have more than one child, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we, we, we have these thoughts in our mind, if, if I just do this or if I just raise this child like this or if I just speak these truths into this child in this way, then, then everything will go as it should. And you spend a little while parenting and and you suffer the heartbreak of a disobedient child. Or I think the worst is the perspective that we have at the end of our life on time. We spend so much of our time doing the things that we thought we should do. And then a parent dies and you realize that you would give anything for just one more moment. At every turn, we are people of perspective. And yet, though our perspective changes throughout our life, there is one thing that remains the same. 
And it's this, that it's only with proper perspective that we will ever see anything as it truly is. And so I think here in Colossians chapter 3, in terms of living the Christian life and understanding what we have been called to in Christ and how we are to live, Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 17 is Paul's way of giving us the proper perspective. If we have been called to these things, if we have been saved for these things, then how are we to live our lives? So let's look. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 17. Here Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, let's pray and let's dig in. Father, thank you for this time. Be with us. Do in us by your spirit what only you can do. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Change our hearts. Draw us into understanding that changes who we are. And Father, would you be pleased in this work? And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, we have three points. And listen, I do understand the task that I have before me. Um, it's, it's, uh, it was very kind of Brad to ask me to preach today, actually. Uh, an honor, really. Um, had I known that we would be putting faces of babies on the screen directly before I come up, I would have said no. I understand the task that I have. We don't have a lot of time and now you have to look at me after ooing and aahing at the babies that were just before us. But if you will bear with me, I think this is so important. So important. So don't let your mind wander. Put, put your watch away. Put your phone away. I will not steal your time. But this is important. And it's so very practical for each and every single one of us that claim Christ. So three points. Let's begin. Number one is this, in order to live the Christian life faithfully, we must do the work of setting our minds. So here I'm looking specifically at verses one through four, and what Paul does here is he begins with this conditional clause. He he says, if then 
you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are in heaven. Seek the things that are above. And I think the reason that he does this is because in our minds, he wants to draw a connection. He wants to make a link between what God has done for us in Christ and what it means for the way that we actually live our lives. Let's look a little bit. Paul explains this very well in Romans chapter 6. So Romans 6, 1 through 4, Paul says this, immediately after saying, by the way, the grace of God is infinitely greater than your sin. So what that means, as your sin abounds, so does in even greater, more mysterious ways, the grace of God abound. But then he realizes who he's writing to. He's writing to sinners. He's writing to people like us. And so he anticipates a question that they have. Verse six, or chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So here really is the the foundation, the substance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are sinners, you are dead in your sin, and Christ has died for you that you might die with him and in dying with him, raise to newness of life. And so in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we get to in the here and now, right now, if Christ is yours, rejoice that we have died with Christ. We are not what we once were. And yet, because of God's grace and love, we have been raised with Jesus. That's glorious. But what Paul wants us to understand is that salvation is not just about spiritual benefits. It's not about being able to sit in this room right now and think, I'm so glad what God has done for me in Christ and what is being stored up in heaven for me even now. I'm so glad that my eternal resting place is not hell, but is in fact heaven with God in Christ. And that's true. That's true. But we have a problem that we suffer from. We can so often look at our salvation and see it as this benefit, even as this fire insurance, and we can forget that salvation is first and foremost primarily recreation. We are not what we once were. And if we're to understand anything about the Christian life, then Paul needs us to understand that it's not just about what Jesus has done and what he has to offer you. It's about what God has done in you through Christ. There's this work at the moment of your salvation that takes place. And it's this, that in an instant, you are taken from death to life. And we have to understand that. It's not just something to praise God for and to say amen. It has to do with how we then live the life we've been given. So for Paul and for us, I hope it is that who we are in Christ and how we are to live our lives, those two things are inseparable. We can't consider one without considering the other. And so often, if you're like me and you want to be honest about it, we do exactly that. 
We separate the way we're living and behaving from who we've been made in Christ. Because who we've been made in Christ is all about the benefit and what God has to give us in Jesus. And us living is kind of more about our thing and working it out in our own time. Okay, that's true, but we got to qualify it, right? So this is the perspective that Paul is giving us on the Christian life. He tells us to seek the things above. He tells us to set our minds on those things. And the reason is, is because if we will do that as believers, then we can actually begin to see all other things as they truly are. You and I, we, if, we, if we have placed our faith in Christ, if we have confessed our sin, and if we have placed our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then you and I, we can see things as they truly are. But we would be so unwise to assume that we're not going to live our entire life being enticed and lied to by the devil. And so Paul's concern here is that as we progressively seek the things of heaven, as we set our minds on those things, we will begin to see the lies. We we will begin to see the way that we are being enticed into an ungodly way of living, even as Christ's redeemed. So this is his concern for us. So to set our minds, we might say, and and I'm drawing this point basically from verses 1 through 4. If you look at these verses, just look back at them real quick. You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things above where Christ is. Set your mind on these things. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And then when Christ, who is your life, I, I, I think it's safe to say that to set our minds on the things above is to be consumed with Christ. You know, if you, if you want to know what it is as a believer to set your mind on the things of heaven, I think we could just say it's, it's being consumed with Jesus. Right? Every, every single word, every single deed is meant to be seen in the perspective of a life that is being shaped by Christ and that is lived Christward. It's exactly why Paul, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Yes, of course, for me to die is gain. As a Christian, when I die, I gain everything. But right before that, what does he say? For me to live is Christ. There's no qualification to it whatsoever. Because the assumption is, is if you are in Christ, then you do actually understand what it means to live your life for Christ. It means that you're the type of person that when we're singing these songs, you, you do truly rejoice. Your heart, and listen, I don't know what is happening with me, but in the past like seven years, my eyes just leak all the time. We're singing songs. Some of the songs I even asked if we could sing this morning, and I'm crying. I'm like, who picked this stupid song? And I'm like, oh, this is, I told, I asked if they would sing it. I did this to me. But, but it's just, I, I get to a point, and I, ho- I hope you're like this, and this doesn't make me holy. It's actually out of a sense of my worthlessness that I sing these songs, and I think, what? Jesus has done this for me? Who am I to deserve this? This glory is mine? And, and there's a sense in which my mind is being set on Christ, and so I know I know who I am, and, I, and yet I know the thing that I'm rejoicing in. It, it's looking at the disobedience of your children with sorrow, 
knowing that this is not what they've been called to, knowing that this is not the standard that you have been given as a parent, and yet there they are, again, disobeying. And you know that you're supposed to train up your child in the ways that that they should go, and, and that when they get older, they won't depart from them. And I know what it is to sit in my own house and to, to know the sinner that I am and to suffer the temptations that I suffer. And yet to set your mind on Christ is to not let one single of those areas be off limits for Jesus. It's not to be perfect. It's to be infatuated with Christ. So if Christ is our righteousness, and I hope you believe that he is. So if Christ is our righteousness, and in verse 4, if he is our very life as a Christian, then the conclusion is that our life ought to be the expression of that truth. So as we move into verse 5, what we're told by Paul is how these things, how these grand glorious truths, therefore change the way we live. And just as an aside, I want you to understand something about Paul, because Paul is, is maybe outside of Jesus the greatest theologian that has ever walked the face of the planet. The, the greatest theologian, the, the, the sharpest mind maybe, and so much so that at one point Peter even tells some people about Paul, hey, Paul says some things that are hard to understand. That's Peter. On this rock, the church will be built. He's like, hey, Paul, <laughs> at times, he's, he's, he's got some things to say. That Paul, that Paul, the one with the deep theology, for him, theology is never simply knowledge. Theology is not less than knowledge, but for Paul, theology is knowledge that's meant to be applied to your life and worked out in your life. And so here in Colossians 3, 1 through 17, we see some of the deepest truths in verses 1 through 4, and then how they are practically meant to be applied in our lives as believers. So point two is this, we are to set our minds towards putting to death what we once were. We are to set our minds toward putting to death what we once were. So these verses speak to a reality that we all suffer from, and that is this, that each of us bears the stain of sin. Every single one of us. If you are in Christ or you are outside of Christ, if you are in this room, you bear the stain of sin. The theological word is depravity. It means that we are not as bad as we could possibly be, But because of Adam, our first father, and Eve, our first mother, we are completely and totally depraved. There is not one square inch of you or me that is not affected by sin. And I can prove it to you. At some point in this next month, you're going to get a headache. That's because of the fall. But but even greater than that, you, you are going to go home today and you are going to be tempted to sin. Every square inch of us is affected by sin. And what Paul says here, and it's almost like a, just a little like throw in line here real quick. He says, and by the way, the consequence of your sin is the wrath of God. This is, this is so important for us to understand. And if you're an unbeliever, I want you to know something. I don't want to spend any time at all trying to scare you about the reality of hell. 
I believe that God's word is true. I believe that what the Bible says about hell is true. And I don't want you to go there. Any of us, any of us who die outside of Christ will spend an eternity suffering the punishment and the wrath of God for our sin. Oh, friend, don't let that be you. Turn your eyes to Jesus and confess your sin and place your faith in him. But here's what he also says. Yes, the consequence for our sin is God's wrath unless we have died with Christ. Isn't that beautiful? This this deep theology, understanding the, the death of Jesus Christ, the exchange that takes place, all of this planning in the mind of God from eternity past, and yet the one thing we get to walk away from in this passage is that in Jesus' death, the wrath for my sin was absorbed by him. My punishment, the consequence of my life, was taken by Jesus. And so for the Christian, our problem isn't the wrath of God, it's the residue of sin. And this is what Paul wants us to see and understand. And by the way, we do, right? We know intimately the ways in which the residue of sin covers us. Brad said something a couple weeks back, and and he just said, could you imagine, could you imagine if people could get in your head and know the things about you that you know? And in that moment, I'm just, it's like the breath was taken away from me. I'm like, I cannot. I can't imagine that. And so Paul wants us to understand that The problem for us as Christians, as we seek to live this Christian life faithfully, is that we do so with the residue of sin. And so what Paul's exhortation here is, in verses 5 through 11, is how we are to live the Christian life. And listen, we're going to skip over a bunch of stuff, and for that, I'm sorry. Um, But listen, if you think you can get hangry, I can get hangrier. So I get, again, what we're up against. And so we're going to skip over some things. uh, There's a list of of, uh, of vices here, and then we're going to go into a list of virtues, and we are not going to parse those things out this morning. That, that's another sermon, and someday when I'm a lead pastor, I'll spend four years in Colossians 3 and um, get fired from that church and come back here and be the youth pastor again. But I, I think if you want to sum it up in verses 5 through 11, you could, you could simply say that Paul is telling us as Christians, because we are acquainted with what it is to be in Christ, he's saying, stop sinning. Stop it. It's unbecoming of who you are in Christ. But, but that's, like, that's a little harsh. And that's not, it. that's not actually what he says. It's what I tell myself. It's what I say when I look in the mirror. It's what I say when I look into my own heart. Stop it. You know better. Stop. You know what Christ has done. You know that he has put these things to death in you. Why are you letting them rule over you? But but friends, it's much deeper than that. God is not a God who is just consumed with us doing or not doing. What Paul means to say as he gives us these lists of vices to put off, to take off, to declothe ourselves from, is that we should stop fulfilling the passions that we once loved. That changes it, doesn't it? 
because it, com- it becomes so much less about just not sinning and so much more about learning to desire Jesus more than I desire my own selfish desires of sin. It's saying, don't let your passions, don't let your affections be the thing that control you in life. If you are to put these things off, if you are to put on, if you are to set your mind on the things above, then that means setting your mind and your affections and your desires on those things which please Christ and which are his affections and his desires. So it's not just stop sinning, it's stop fulfilling the things that you once loved. You are not the old you. The things you once walked in, you once walked in them and were defined by them. But praise be to God in Christ, that's not who you are. And so in setting our minds on Christ, we're setting our minds against our flesh. If you're to set your mind, dear believer, on Christ, then a part of that work is setting your mind against your flesh. It it means that we have a heart that beats for Jesus, a heart that longs for Jesus, a heart that in the face of our sin confesses to Jesus, a heart that looks at every area, every square inch of your life and wants it to be consumed with and drenched with and steeped with Jesus. Now, I'm not for a moment saying that that is easy, but it ought to be our desire. Will we continue to long for the things that we once loved, or will we over time learn to long for the things that please God? But, but we could, oh man, I could linger here for so long. And it would be worthwhile in doing that, but, but I don't want to do that. Let me explain why. Um, in southern Ohio, where I'm from, uh, Appalachia, if you say Appalachia, it's wrong. I just set the record straight. Uh, you learn to, to, to be um, consumed with potholes uh, basically in kindergarten. Uh, the first day of kindergarten, I came in and Miss Morris, my, my kindergarten teacher, she's like, Tyler. I'm so glad you're in my class. How was your bus ride in? And I'm like, well, I'll tell you one thing. That bus is going to need a front-end alignment because we hit every pothole on 141. And you won't believe what it was like when we turned on, on State Route 93. And don't even get me started about heading into Pedro, Miss Morris. By the way, are we still having cookies before we do nap time today? It's just ingrained in who you are if you're from the north. You're, you're obsessed with potholes. You, for seven months out of the year, you just complain about them. You see them, you grit your teeth at them. In in your mind, you're talking about all of the county workers and how they do nothing. And as a kindergarten, what do my taxes even go to anyways? And and, and this is what happens, is is we just, we look at them and and we're just like, just, just fill in the pothole. My car is literally being destroyed seven months out of the year. Just get some gravel or some quick set uh, concrete or, or maybe even asphalt. I don't know. Just fill, in, fill the hole in. And it becomes an obsession. And you see the problem. And you just, you're obsessed with the problem. And you just fill it in. Just fill it in. Just, just fix the problem. But the problem is, is that unless you fill these holes in the right way, It doesn't matter how obsessed you are with them. 
Because unless you find the right solution, the water's still going to creep in the cracks and it's still going to freeze and the pothole is going to open right back up. So what I want us to understand is that the, the danger is identifying the problem, even becoming obsessed with the problem of our sin and never truly finding its proper solution. Point three. We are to set our minds towards putting on who God has made us in Christ. So verses 12 through 17 here, once again, what Paul is doing is he's linking our obedience to the power of Christ's work, right? Like, please, please see that. See that. Uh, Please don't tell Brad that I pound on his pulpit. I try really not to do that because it's his thing. And so, please don't tell him. But, but what he says here in verse 12, he, he uses some words to key us in because it is so important. Our, our obedience is being linked not to how obedient we are. Our obedience is being linked to not how good we are at living the Christian life. Our obedience is being linked to the power of Christ's work. He calls us chosen ones. He says that we are holy and beloved. Those are not terms, those, those are not verbal phrases of us. Right? We are chosen ones because for whatever reason, God looked at someone like me and said, I'm going to save you. And if he can save me and everything that I've come from, it really makes sense that he would save you too. But, but he didn't do it because of anything in us. He, he simply says that we are the chosen ones. We are the picked ones. We are the adopted ones. But then he says something even crazier. He says, you're, you're holy. Okay, you did not make yourself holy. And so what this means is that because of what Christ has done, we, we are now holy ones. And then if you think about Ephesians 1 that Robert just read from us, did you, did you catch that? What, what Ephesians 1 says of Jesus? What is one of his names? Beloved. Beloved. The beloved. And then here, Paul in Colossians 3 calls us Beloved, you are in the eyes of God because of what Christ has done in you, seen as Christ is seen. Oh, friends, we did not do that for ourselves. So Paul's solution to our sin then is, wait for it, Christ. Right, look back up at verse 10. So verse 10 here, what Paul says is talking about having put off the old. He says, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So he, he says this past tense, have put on. And then he talks about this present active being renewed. Right. So what, what he means to say is that regarding our sin, Christ's work is finished. That is, we have died with him. Our sin has been atoned for. And yet, we have also been raised to walk in newness of life. So there is this completed work regarding our sin, and yet there is this ongoing work. So what does that mean for us? It means that what's objectively true of us increasingly becomes our lived reality. If you want to know what it is to live the Christian life in the power of Christ's work, it has become more and more and more like Jesus. Not because you are awesome, but because this is the power of Christ's work in us. And praise God for that. 
Because there is at least one of you right now that's hanging your head thinking this is not a standard that I can live up to. And friend, all I would say is join the club. But Christ's work is not given to you in proportion to how obedient you are. What Christ has done for you, he has done for you in full. And what he is continuing to do for you will be for the rest of your life. But here's another important thing, and and this one's going to sting a little bit, but we need to see it. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. And here's the qualifier, but Christ is all and in all. Okay, so yeah, maybe he is certainly thinking of what he says in Ephesians where he's talking about the dividing wall of hostility being torn down, right? If you are in Christ, that is the thing you have in common more than anything else with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how you talk. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter whether you even know what a paho is. If you are in Christ, you have everything in common with those who are in Christ. He could be talking about that. And I think he is in some sense. But I think in, in, in this context, as we look at this in terms of living the Christian life, I think one of the things that he's saying is that it's not your version or my version of holiness and faithfulness. It's simply that we all together are being renewed in Christ's image. And so we have to stop looking at other people and thinking, okay, well, you know, they're just really faithful and they're really holy and that's kind of their thing. You know, the, the, the regular attendance on a Sunday morning, I mean, you know, that's their thing, but we got some things going on. Uh, friends, it's, there, there's no standard of your holiness and my holiness, or your faithfulness and my faithfulness. Christ is all. And if you have died with Christ and raised with him, then what verse 11 is actually telling us is that the standard is that we are being renewed in the image of our Creator. Go back to Colossians chapter 2, and what we're told in the Christ hymn, verses 1 through 15, is that all things were made by, for, and through Jesus. So everything, all of life, every area, is meant to be lived with a perspective on growing towards and in and with Christ. Well, friends, there's no standard of holiness. There is only Jesus And what we have to ask ourselves is, is my life oriented around that truth? Is Jesus more important than anything else? And the answer is yes, but we will not live that way perfectly. But the answer is yes. So verse 12, he says, then if this is all true, put on. Put on what? Well, there's a whole list of things. Again, we don't have time to go through them. But we could say it like this. We are to clothe ourselves in Christ. Dress yourself in Jesus. Put Jesus on. Right? So what does that look like? Verse 17. It's the summary of all of this. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's not about an exhaustive list of do's and don'ts. If you walk away from this place thinking, well, man, Tyler told me I need to come to church more. 
Well, that is true. Like, I'm, I'm not going to say, like, we should all come to church as often as we can. So, not going to apologize for that. Uh, we should. We should value gathering with, with brothers and sisters. But that's not the point. The point is that the Christian life is not about checking the right boxes. It's not about doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. Oh, friends, that's, that's not what the Christian life is about. That's the work of Christ being expressed through us. So verse 17 really is saying this. The Christian life is about having a desire for Christ to rule over all of our life. We're being renewed what? In knowledge of the image of our Creator. Understand that your desires are just as important as the way you actually live your life. Oh, friends, we all know people who obey the speed limit, and yet they're like flailing four-letter words like it's their job. Just because you do the right thing doesn't mean you have the right heart. What God is concerned with most is the heart, is knowing what Christ has done and understanding that because of what He has done, I can then live the life that He has called me to. Oh, friends, we don't please the Lord by doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. It's about understanding simply what he's done for us in Christ. And so what we can say is that for a lifetime, we labor, labor, labor. We labor to put off and put on. And friends, we will do it imperfectly every single day of our life. And look at the end of verse 17 one more time. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, in word or deed, and we say, okay, we're going to fail. <laughs> By the way, uh, Paul, just so you know, I'm all on board with this, but this isn't going to go good, at least at times. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, this is my heart's desire, but I'm just telling you, I'm going to lose my temper every now and again. I'm not saying that I should be able to, I just know who I am. Okay, giving thanks to God. Give thanks to God? <laughs> Wait, I just told you I would not be able to do this perfectly. What am I giving thanks for? You're giving thanks to God that though you are imperfect and though you will obey imperfectly, what God has done for you in Christ is simply true because it was his choice in doing it for you. You have died with Christ and been raised again, not because you chose to do that, but because that is what God has done for you in Christ. And so even in the midst of failure, even in the midst of not doing what we're supposed to do in the Christian life, we can look and we can say, thanks be to God that I stand before God in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for your word. Be with us now. Work these things into our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.